Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. We are using it to make the world better as we speak. That's true. If you've got $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do stuff like make some merch, pay for gas, do exciting adventures. Um, <laughs> I was going to say something really mean and catty. I was going to say uh, continue to and and oh, yeah i don't know if i can keep that um if you would like to help us do any of that you can join our supporters on patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap where you also get access to the patreon only podcast that ian and i record called pillow talk um i think this week might be mothman this might be might be the week i'm very excited mothman yeah. Like, Do you know Mothman? I know the the character Arthur, who's a moth from The Tick. Is that no. what you're talking about? Because you should, because no. that's delightful. That's that's well, an incredible show. I, you've mentioned The Tick before. I'm going to have to go find it and, and actually watch it. No, this is like the cryptid Mothman with the Point Pleasant Bridge collapse in West Virginia. It's a, you know what? You'll have to subscribe to our Patreon to hear more about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it should be fun. Uh, Ian, uh, uh, Ian doesn't ever know what to do with my obsession with weird things. So mm-hmm. it makes for a delightful conversation. That's true. <laughs> and this is also the longest Patreon ad I think I've ever uh experience which is fun is it <laughs> is it is it fun i mean it could be it, i don't know is this what fun is i don't know i have i haven't had fun in years <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know anymore if you're not in a position to support us financially there are still ways that you can help us out you can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice rate and review us on apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice or follow us on twitter or facebook or just keep listening because that is good too it's true. And now, on to the show. One, two, five, nine. Robin Breeze is serving leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. So, Ethan, how was your week this week? You know, I want it was actually a little restful. So, like, I'm in the middle of sort of a reading week where I don't have class today or tomorrow. And that's that's really all what that means. It's not really a reading week. It's more of a what do we do with Columbus slash Indigenous Peoples Day? Um, <laughs> you well, know, we stopped and, calling it Columbus Day for one thing. That's right. Like, um, so so basically, what they did was they gave us Monday and Tuesday off, which meant that I could I didn't have to read this weekend, which, which ultimately means that I have a whole weekend off, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'm reading today after we're done podcasting, but that's okay. I, that my brain could relax, um, which which was nice. Um. My sister-in-law has officially moved in to with us now. Oh. Um, my youngest sister-in-law, we offered her uh, the chance to move in last year. We were like, hey, you can move in with us if you want, you know, when you're done with high school. Because she wasn't planning on going to college and she's never left her hometown. And I was like, why not? You don't, 
you don't have any unless you just want to keep living with with you know my your mom and dad my my parents-in-law you can come and live with us you can like get a job or go to the community college down here or maybe you do want to go to like a a full four-year college while you're living here and you'll be a virginia resident and so you'll get if if you get into uva you get like discounts you know like why not yeah and so she moved in and so which is actually quite nice i was excited for it you know and and so she's she's hanging out um applying for jobs and uh playing with Adrea and you know is 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 doing good stuff. I harass her. I've known her since she was 8. Wow. And so and so it's fun to not only watch her grow up but then just harass her for 11 years. You know. <laughs> and now she lives with me, so now I just really harass her all the time. Um, it's just like harass i know is not the exact word that you want i mean i guess it is but like yeah i i know exactly what you mean by it it's just a, a an interesting buzzword to pick well i mean it's, it's the word we use uh, harass by bothering her that's my plan what am that i supposed sense. to do just treat her treat her with dignity and respect hell no she's my sister you know <laughs> that's not what we do Oh boy! At our um, at the luncheon. Well, it wasn't a luncheon. We had lunch as a family yesterday, uh, and my dad was teasing Ian about something, uh, and then like it, we like heard that that had happened, and Ian walked back into the the dining room and was like, "It's okay. Uh, teasing is is how my family shows affection, so it's fine." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it is. You've you've said this," and my mom was like. That's a Yankee thing. I thought I had broken your father of that before. <laughs> Teasing Gosh. to show affection. I don't know so. how. What do we even do if we can't tease? I don't you know. know. Like what you really should see is you should you should watch Angie when I'm open and honest with her about my feelings towards her. And and mm-hmm. she wants to both kill the world and herself all at the same time. You know, that's <laughs> It's that's how it is. That's how it is. She yelled at me for our CM Punk episode, by the way. They listened uh-huh. to the CM Punk episode. And she was like, why are you calling me out like this? Like, because I mentioned that CM Punk is her type and she finds him very attractive. And, and she's like, why do you always insult me on your podcast? And I'm like, OK, Angie, next time I will begin by saying how much I love and cherish you. And she's like, no, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> can't do that yeah. either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you won't start with that none of that bullshit and so angie we think you're great like we do yeah so yell at ethan about it but don't yell at me about it i'm just being nice yeah well i try <laughs> to be nice uh but other than that church was terrible i, I won't lie to you church was tough I-, I don't really have a specific story not really but it was just grading it was gr- it was a grading sunday um folks were pretty normal pretty typical so like something that i that this this appointment the second appointment has sort of shown me joe is mm-hmm. like a it's it's made me really appreciate my first appointment because i had a pretty good first appointment you know and i'm grateful for that i'm that wasn't that was that was luck basically and i'm i'm happy that i had a pretty decent first appointment um, I used to think, Joe, that I was really good at kind of uh, 
maybe being professional is the right word for it. Like I used to think I was really good at church people would say kind of at us or at me or at young people, stuff that's not very nice, stuff that's that's not very thoughtful, um, but is also stuff that they're not trying to maliciously do. Mm-hmm. They're just they just don't really know any better and they're not very curious, mm-hmm. you know, to know any better. And so I used to think that I was really good at kind of taking that and kind of not really allowing it to bother me, but then like kind of kind of repeating publicly in this in a in a better way. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we talked about that a few weeks ago with the lady who wants us to pray for the fascists who are trying to, you know, uh, commit human rights atrocities at the border. Like like you have that. And while that bothered me, you know, I was able to kind of take that and do something, say something about it that that was both professional and didn't just sort of allow her words to just kind of hang in the air and oppress us. Right. Right. Um, and this past Sunday, like like it was just so many little things. Um, that graded and, and you know, on me. Uh, that never used to kind of grate on me in the same mm-hmm. way. Um, maybe in my first appointment or, or at other times in my life, just little baby boomer bullshit things, mm. you know, just little stuff, random comments about how our generations don't want to work, random comments about how, Gen- millennials and Gen Zs don't care about God. Little comments about, you know, the church is falling apart and it's all young people's fault. Like little little throwaway things. Right. The Boy Scouts are have filed for bankruptcy, and now what are we supposed to do? Oh, well, it's probably because they let girls in now. You know, just little dumb shit like that. <laughs> little, what? Little dumb shit like that. Little dumb shit like that. Ooh, um, yeah. Stuff stuff that is of course wrong. Like completely stupidly wrong like about everything but but also like innocuous bullshit that relatively powerless people just say to each other you know like it's not like it's it's the difference between random boomer on a sunday saying it and then joe biden saying it you know Mm. okay you correct Mm. joe biden he's the effing president you know you correct you correct uh, people with power because they can wield their random boomer bullshit against the world. Right. You know, you don't, you can correcting, correcting Ethel is optional, you know, right. <laughs> like, like <laughs> um, but like, I just, Oh my gosh. I, it was just one person saying something like that after another this past Sunday to me about young people and boy scouts and, we had very few people in church at Gordonsville. Very few. Um, we had more people at church at the smaller church than at the bigger church this past Sunday. And I could tell that scared everybody. Mm-hmm. And and it was just, oh, man. And it was, and this actually wasn't, wasn't bad at all, but it was the um, uh, camel through the eye of a needle passage for mm-hmm. the lectionary. So I preached on that. And, and it was good. I got, you know, folks at, at the second church, at the bigger church, uh, um, one lady 
very politely and very appropriately raised her hand during the sermon and asked questions about it, you know, as I was preaching, because it's a tough, it's, it's, it's a scary and tough and often, you know, has a history of very badly interpreted passage, right? Camel through the eye of a needle. And as I was preaching on it, she got uncomfortable with what was saying. And she, like I said, of very appropriately and, and, you know, without, malice was like pastor i i don't know i don't know what to make of what you're saying you know and so we talked about it that was perfectly exhilarating and great everything that happened around that though was one dumb thing after another and yeah and uh i just didn't have the energy i didn't have the energy like like i i'm sure i was still professional but i didn't have the energy to sort of walk away from it and not bother me Mm. um which is usually how it would go. Like for most of my pastoral career, most of that stuff, not all of it, if it's particularly juicy, it it sits with me, but most of that stuff, I don't even remember it after 20 seconds, Mm. you know, cause it's just what baby boomers say, you know, it's just the inane chatter of baby boomers, right? This sounds really mean, but like, but like we all, Anybody who's under 35 who listens to our podcast knows exactly what we're talking about, you know, right? Right. You just baby boomers will say things to you and 30 to 50 percent of it is stuff you can ignore because it's just it's just random. It's just random, meaningless, nothing. You know, it's stuff that they've absorbed through propaganda or just through talking with other baby boomers. It's the equivalent of how you know, one third of what millennials say to each other is internet memes. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of that, right? Like, like you can ignore essentially one third of what millennials say to each other because chances are, unless you know, internet memes, you probably don't have any idea what we're talking about, you know, like, like, and it's okay. That's not a bad thing, but I just couldn't ignore it. I, I, I did. I got in the car and I looked at Beth and I was like, today was a hard day. Today was, Today was tough. Today was tough to listen to people's thoughts on the Boy Scouts and listen to people's thoughts on, you know, what young people should or shouldn't be doing, <laughs> especially as it relates to the church. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I so I don't want to hammer home the Boy Scout thing too much because uh, uh, I can hear that you're tired of it. Um, <laughs> it's okay. But but also like both of my brothers went through scouting um, and like, it was a really like their Eagle Scouts. It was a really positive experience for them. Like a lot of people had a really positive experience with the troop that was at my home church. Um, And I just got invited to uh, a Facebook group that was like, keep, uh, keep our troop at, at this particular church. Cause I imagine the church is having a conversation of like the legality and the liability Mm -hmm. of, um, I mean, and, and this email went around uh, before uh, before I left being a pastor of like, if your church has ever had a Boy Scout troop, you need to find the records and you need to uh, like update your insurance and talk to your, your whoever's providing your insurance about um, how you're going to handle if there are allegations and um, and if it needs to go to court and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I what what I think really astounds me the most is that somebody 
would even just be existing in just in the world and think that the problem with the Boy Scouts is letting girls in versus the horrible abuse that happened in many Boy Scout troops that right. like churches fostered or covered up in some cases. And in some cases they just didn't know, like sure. they just did not know what was happening in their churches. Um, and the church that I went to in college, I, there was um, something came up and this was well before the Boy Scouts filed for bankruptcy by uh, allegations came up about things that had happened at the Boy Scout meetings that had happened at that church. And it just like, I remember it rocking me in college. Like I, this, like this is part of the, I, I feel is, is something that's actually a hopeful generational shift that, um, that things that would have been swept into the rug before like harm that we would have just said, well, you can't, you can't say that because it would ruin the scouts. It would ruin the church and we, and the church and scouting is more precious than what happened to you. Mm -hmm. uh, like there, there is a generally a real push to have a reckoning with things. And like, is that reckoning going to be complete? Is is there going to be real reconciliation and restitution? I like, uh, not really like not not to the extent that it needs to be uh, probably because we are incapable of of doing the work that needs to be done this side of heaven uh and and that is why i have a lot of thoughts about theodicy all the time but mm -hmm. i like it, i i would have very much struggled to keep my cool in a situation where somebody wanted to talk about the boy scouts and did not want to center the people who have been harmed in scouting. And again, this is from somebody who like has only had positive experiences with scouting, you know, sure, like sure. my brothers worked at boy scout camp. Like, like this is something that like I have in general, a very positive opinion of. And yeah, like I understand what's happening here and we need to take it seriously. And and to be flipping about it at all is something that I, I would really lose my cool over. Sure. Sure. And I don't mean to, you know, you made a comment about not wanting to hammer home on boy scouts. Cause it sounds like I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to, I don't want to paint a picture. Like I, I have a different feeling about it than you do. Like, Oh, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that kind of stuff is, I know that's not it, but I just wanted to say that into the void, you know, like, like, no, for sure. Like, we should always be centering victims and, and making sure that centering the voices of victims and making sure that justice is being done. And, you know, I reiterate what you say, but I, for me, it's just the, that that's the kind of stuff, that topic, that way of talking, that is really difficult, at least for the church that I'm in, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. where, where that's just not the way they think, you know, they, maybe on some things, maybe they think that way on the subjects that they're trained to think on, right? People are trained to think this, this way regarding um, abortion, I suppose, sort of, in a weird way, you know, like they're trained to think this way on, on issues that they've been told um, are um, connected to their identities as Christians. Mm, um, and are black and white. Yeah. And are black and white, exactly. But uh, what what is what it was frustrating for me was that this is just un, this was this topic was just sort of paired with all the other just general gripes. Right. Right. You know, what's the problem? Well, the main problem is that now it becomes even harder for the church to do Boy Scouting, which is 
really important because you know boy scouting's great you know and then they then they spiral on and on about boy scouting and i'm like yes i get it i get it scouting is wonderful that's why every eagle scout that this church has ever supported continues to do stuff at the church <laughs> that isn't that just the kicker though <laughs> yeah listeners they I don't they don't do that in case you didn't pick up on that listeners <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um Gosh. Yeah. I had a, I had a parishioner who wanted us to think about restarting Boy Scouts. And as I like floated the idea to other parishioners, they were like, yeah, he's been talking about that for a while, but like, we just don't have the people power to do it. Like we don't, we don't have the volunteers. How would we do it? We would have to pair with other people. Like really it's just easier for us to support other Boy Scout troops. And all that sounds really true to me, but like, yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't do scouting for the benefit that it gives the church. It really has to be like an outreach thing. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm that you do to to care for the community and like in the wake of all this there are plenty of other ways to do similar outreach like that and to have this kind of community organizations it's just that like scouting has become the well one it was always like a handy white supremacist tool in its in its beginnings um but two like it's just become this really like it's a it's part of the culture wars now yeah um And that, yeah, and that's hard because it is both a, a beloved part of people's memories and something that's been bedused and charged in this way. And mm. and I hate it. Like, I hate that for it. Um, yeah. God, what else I was going to say? There's something else. Uh, oh, wait. Did you have Boy Scout Sunday at your church growing up or any churches you attended? At the church growing up, one of the churches that I was a part of uh, in elementary and middle school uh, probably still has this, although I don't know for sure, but definitely had a strong scouting heritage. And so mm. I have distinct memories of a Boy Scout Sunday. And then at Kerwinsville, we did Boy Scout Sunday once because that mm. was that scouting was a was a source of drama. That was one of the first. The, I think I uh, remember that. Yeah, I told a story once of uh, old, one of the one of the older guys at the church who went back and forth on whether or not he liked me um like pub- like went off on somebody at council because of scouting and i almost was like yeah. mm, this seems to be a very spiritually healthy thing that that our church is doing this seems great this <laughs> yeah. seems great and then i got yelled at from somebody else for not coming to scouting and doing you know god and me or whatever with with random atheist boys who don't care about god who are just here to scouting and i'm like yeah i guess i really should um i really should do that but i didn't then because i had better things to do (laughs) yeah Yeah. and i know like it's rude of me i get it like i'm not here to denounce scouting that's not that's not my point you know i just have have while you have had very positive experiences with scouting uh my experiences with scouting have been largely ambivalent um Mm uh and and see it sort of primarily as a holdover like why do why are churches and scouts connected uh well practically it's for purely material reasons um and then and then a theology of boy scouting uh is created to justify the purely material reasons you know yeah 
Yeah, that that sounds right. Yeah. I and yeah, and again, like it's so we we had Boy Scout Sunday every year <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when I was growing up at my home church. And then my little brother got his eagle. I was I um I was in college and I there was like a Sunday where we were trying to figure out when the handbell choir was gonna ring. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, I have to go back home for this Sunday. My little brother's getting his eagle, like a scout Sunday. They're going to confer it. And the the handbell director was like, you have scout Sunday? I was like, yeah, like it's it's during the start. It's scout Sunday. Don't don't we all do this? And the handbell director was like, no. And so I've been like, anytime it comes up, I'm like, let me see how widespread scout Sunday is. Because I thought it was just a thing we did. But yeah, I yeah. I, I go back and forth on it because it's it, it, like I was it's going to start to say um, because the idea of scouting is something that we imported from the British Empire and mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. like in that way a part of, of the continuing of empire and the colonial era and uh, and white white supremacy but not in the cross-burning way and just kind of the casual way of like we want to make sure that our white children continue to be the strongest and best children um it's that it's that sneaky white supremacy that i'll get you every time um so like so like would i ever start a boy scout troop at a church that i was serving Probably not, especially after all of this, just because it is a complicated history that has not really been dealt with at all. Um, but but there are plenty of other ways to do things that accomplish the same goals as scouting without the heritage and baggage of scouting. Um, and, and I just feel a lot of ways about it. It's like this kind of microcosm of like, can you reform something or do you just need to start? over new and i think that a lot of people over the decades kind of found that like while there were people benefiting from scouting and and i am not here to deny that benefit there also was enough wrong with it that like they just started their own thing they just started the the camping ministry they wanted or Mm -hmm. the the after school program that they wanted or the mentoring program that they wanted and then didn't have to do the the same thing that had been done before. It's like Thunder Girls instead of like Girl Scouts, you know. Thunder <laughs> Girls, <Bob> Thunder Girls. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's uh they're they're doing the the thing uh and they're doing like typical Girl Scout things. I assume because they could, she couldn't just be a Girl Scout because they would get sued. Right, <laughs> but, right. But like, yeah, people just started to do things that are kind of like Boy Scout but without all the Boy Scout stuff. Um, and I think like in so many ways, it is that paradigmatic example of like, listen, here was a thing that like the origins weren't great to begin with, but we ran with it and, and now chickens are coming home to roost and maybe we don't reform this thing. Maybe we just make something new, but that's a really hard conversation to have with generations above us who that, that engaging with something in that complicated way, not that they're not capable of it, just that they're not as practiced in it as I think we are. Sure, sure. Or who don't believe that the free market uh, applies to them and the things they like. Yeah, um, that might be true. <laughs> that's in the other side of it that I that I just find mwah, delicious about about the whole thing. And whenever stuff like this comes up, well, I mean, there maybe there are just better options than than scouting. No, scouting's the best. Why do you say that? Is it because of propaganda? <laughs> Could it be? That you have consumed propaganda, and now you say bizarre things like this. 
Um, well, and then the other, the flip side of that is that like, okay, if you think scouting is the best, give me your pro con list, give me your data, give me a compelling argument for it. Uh, and then that like, there's just, they kind of just shut, shut down and are like, well, why would I do that? Like, I, I know it for myself. And that, but then they, on the flip side of it, accuse us of being uh, a generation that is ruled by our emotions instead of being uh, ruled by the logic that they're ruled by. Like it's instead of, instead of reason and facts, for example, right. boy scouting is great. And the fact of the matter is, is if you don't like it, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that, but yeah, yeah. It's I, I and I think that I, I, and I'm sorry that I continue to try to parse this out, but like my brain <laughs> is, is caught on it. Uh, and we can talk about other stuff in the mini sode, but yeah, like, I I think that what bothers me the most about about these frustrating conversations is there's a lot of those like logical fallacies that get committed. Uh, so there's ad hominem attacks, but there's also moving the goalpost, and there's also like appeals to experts who are not really experts, and and it's just that people don't know how to one, don't know that they are walking into a difficult conversation by just saying an offhanded thing about girls and the Boy Scouts. Um, but two, like they don't know how to then have that difficult conversation generously, and, mm -hmm. nor do they really want to. They just want to be right and go about their day. And I think that's what really, that's what is what would get me the, discourage me the most and frustrate me the most when I was a pastor. It's like, I was a lot more patient than I am now. I was talking to uh, somebody who knew me in high school over the weekend and she is the funeral director at one of the funeral homes back home, but she sang in the choir with me for years. And she was like, you know, I just don't have the patience for people anymore. Like I'm just out of patience and I'm angry. And, and I think that like, I almost hate people. Like I don't know how to deal with people and the things that would get me in that situation of just not being able to sit and deal with people are when people just like don't consider the importance and the difficulty of of the conversation that they're walking into and then don't want to have it because they just want to be the way they are right mm -hmm. they're not interested mm -hmm. in changing they're not interested in seeing a new point of view. They're not interested in having empathy for other people whose situations are different from them. They really just want to be as they are. And and when I would run into that in my church and people would be like, you know, I, I have already learned as much as I want to learn. We have already done all of the work that we need to do. This is your generation's work. You do it. I'm not going to help you do it. I am, in fact, going to, in several occasions, stand in the way of you doing it. But it's your work and you have to do it. And I don't know what to do with that. Like... For, it's, for me, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Like either help me and encourage me and mm -hmm. either be very involved or encourage me or you are in my way with it. And the, it's right. really, it ends up falling out that way a lot of the time. And, and I, yeah, I don't have the patience for it that I used to. I, and I think that's, that's a COVID thing because uh, yeah. I think COVID has worn away all of our patience. But I think also like there are a lot of scared people in churches and they don't, when you're scared, you also don't have patience for difficult things, but also going through these difficult things is the only way forward. The other option is to close. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's a, it's a curious phenomenon. I think the, 
Uh, and in some ways, it's really not, because I think in some ways, what you've just described is really the answer. People are afraid, and this is what people who are afraid do. You know, the the world becomes more black and white, and uh, things sort of shrink, and and you know, isn't the light the world isn't as expansive or open. You know, it's just this is how it is, and it must be. Sometimes I think that part of the reason why, um, uh, um, folks in our generation, and even even Gen X as well. Uh, and then Gen Z is beginning to experience this too. Um, one of the reasons why I think we are uh, uh, consistently have some of the least amount of like power in the room, you know, when, when we begin to think about uh, all these spheres, right? Economics, politics, social life, stuff like that, is uh, because some very evil and smart people realize that if you mm-hmm. can get the baby boomers to be afraid of everything, that they'll never die. <laughs> That's they'll never, they'll <laughs> never relinquish, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll just, they'll just stay forever to the point where it's uh, becomes very sad to watch, you know, like, wow, you can't, you can't imagine giving up um, your seat at the table or your place or your power or, or your influence, because you must be convinced that the alternative is to just consign everything to hell. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I guess I sort of understand that. Um, it's not even that I sort of, I absolutely understand that. But like, I guess I can also sort of see why they think that, you know, not only are, not only are we all sort of being, is fear being sort of weaponized, but like, there's also a sense in which, many of us really just don't care about the same institutions. Yeah. And, and so, yes, you know, maybe these institutions will in fact die when, when with baby boomers, you know, um, now there's some reasons behind that. Part of it might be that they're, that, that they weren't prepared to, um, I don't know, allow these institutions or these things to be open to people outside of their generation. You know, nobody was given, that's the problem with the church, right? Why, mm-hmm. why do churches, why, why, why are churches failing three generations? Well, I mean, it's really not that hard. They failed the first of the three generations. Um, yeah. And, and baby boomers told their kids, yeah, you could be a part of our church as long as you're like me. And then Mm -hmm. the kids, and then many of those kids are like, no, fuck you. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and so on and so on, you know. And then when the grandkids showed up, it was the same thing. (laughs) When the millennial grandkids showed up, they were like, yeah, you could be a part of our church, provided you're not like your parents and you're like me. No. And then so on and so on. And so, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I... (sighs) And that, I, I again, I would love to jump like a hundred years into the future and see how how this all turned out and wound up, uh, because I think that, um, I think that we'll really see that like there were these institutions that blossomed with the baby boomer generations and were built for them and have been carried forward by them, and mm-hmm. that it it 
coincided with this like leap forward and technological growth and like just this this crazy boom of wealth in the United States. But then there was no preparation for how things might be different in the future. And nobody, you can't predict the future. It's hard to know what comes next. But there, there's a rigidity to the like the baby boomer worldview. Like we have been living in the 50s trying to like rebel against the 50s. But all of these systems were set up as if they were immortal, like not even a full century ago. And now we're seeing that like, well, they weren't really set up to be agile for the way that times have changed. And so like, of course, people are going to reject them in, in your, in our generation and generations after us, because, well, we aren't, none of this is set up for us. We're not welcome in it and it doesn't serve us in any way. And so it's either adapt to what's here or die. And I, what what I like hate about that is that like I want there to be a solid ground for us to all be able to like work off of, right? Mm-hmm. I want for there to be things that aren't like whims of culture. And I think there are. And I think that a lot of the stuff that we're told is just like uh people rebelling against like the eternal church for a whim of culture. Um I think a lot of the stuff that we're told that is that is is not a whim. It's actually us becoming more kind and more caring. Mm-hmm. But like I I think that the things that baby boomers were told were eternal are things that were actually really ephemeral and and they need a full reset in order to deal with the world as it is right now. And they're just just not capable of it. And they're not going to while they're all still in political power of every kind, right? Like we are being, it's, it's an oligarchy, sure, but we are also in a, a, what is it? A gerontocracy. Like we are just, we are being ruled over on every level by people who should have retired, who should already be in the wings, who should have given up power a long time ago so that the ideas of, generations down the line could come into the fore and we could actually adapt to the world that we're in. But like, that's just not happening. And so much of what's causing us to stall out right now is because of that. And I don't want to like, I don't want to demonize baby boomers. Like we've done a lot, but like both of us have baby boomers that we love. It's It's fine. But there is like, it is genuinely something that we can talk about in a generational mindset because like the differences are really marked and, and like, why don't we talk about this more in seminary? (laughs) Well, because we were taught by baby boomers. (laughs) Oh, you know, that is exactly it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, that's why. Yeah. (laughs) You know that David McAllister Wilson is the longest serving president of Wesley seminary at its current location. I'm pretty. I mean, who? Who? I believe you. I do. I. I think that. I thought he was new, like when I was new. So that seems odd. Or was it Dean Martin who showed up the same year I showed up? In I think it was Dean Martin that showed up okay, the same that, year that you showed that, up. That, that might I, be I don't know for sure. That might be it. Well, good for them. I mean, good for him. I'm glad he's found a stable <laughs> source of income, and I think that's everybody. Everybody deserves uh, the the dignity of labor that's what i think so <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you, you know we could think about if we think about wesley as a as a haven for baby boomers protecting each other it makes a ton of sense 
Um, yeah. You know, no offense to Sandra, who who's my one great love. It's not my one great love, but who <laughs> who, gosh, <laughs> she was fifty years younger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I would let her, I would let her ruin my life. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I have a Sandra Wheeler story. So, but the phone okay. call I had before you before we started was with Rick, actually, a friend of the mm-hmm. pod, Rick O'Gendy. Um, where we, we just to catch up and chatted about stuff and, and, uh, they're looking for the Wesley last year around this time was doing a search for, to replace Sandra mm-hmm. and it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Rick was telling me about it. You know, he didn't give me any details. He couldn't give me, he wasn't allowed to give me, but like, it just didn't work out. The, the can the group of candidates they had for the job description that they had designed, nobody was satisfied with. Uh, And in part, it's because they're essentially trying to, according to Rick, they're trying to take three positions and make it one position. Ah. So they need somebody to both replace Sandra and somebody to sort of run the administrative headship side of the Center for Public Theology. (laughs) And then uh, there was a third thing in there as well. And... um, and and so we were chatting about that, and they have since changed it and changed up the 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 job description. So Rick and I were chatting about that, and he he was like, uh, "Yeah, I mean, you know," he kind of made a comment about when he was at Wesley through the Louisville Fellowship. So his first like two years at Wesley were through this fellowship. Um, he's like, without those first two years, I don't think I'd have. I don't think I'd have even gotten an interview for the job, you know, that I now have at Wesley. Like, like I just was not trained well enough, you know, on that front. And I just hope that UVA uh, trains you better for that, Ethan. And I'm sure they will. And I was like, and then as he said that I was reminded forcibly, and I told him this story then of like me sitting in on people that we were interviewing for the position that Rick has now. And and remembering, uh, I don't remember anybody's name, but remembering one of the candidates was we were all sitting in Kresge at the big lecture room in, in Kresge. And one of the candidates was uh, teaching on Augustine. And he begins his lecture. And before, right before he begins, Sandra was like, Dr. So-and-so, um, quick question about you know some of the things you're doing and like asks a few questions and then he offers his uh uh interpretation of what augustine is doing and sandra we could all feel sandra uh (laughs) in her bones go this is not correct like like this is not the right way of understanding augustine and since that moment for the rest of the 40 minute interview Instead of Dr. So-and-so, it became, excuse me, sweetheart. <laughs> and Sancha just kept calling this poor dude sweetheart the rest of the interview. And I told that to Rick, and Rick's like, oh, yeah, I bet that was devastating. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I bet it was. It was devastating for me. I was like, just give up, buddy. Just go home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You've been defeated. Sandra's calling you sweetheart. You're you're easily the dumbest piece of scum she's ever stepped in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh 
gosh. I, it, it, but here's the other thing. Like, you want to be like, oh, no, we that's a that's an awful job interview situation. And like, yeah, that's not great on the receiving end of it. But also, if you're going to lecture on it, know your stuff. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, that's that's the answer. That's the answer. You know, I imagine it was not like I don't have any. I told this trick. I was like, I don't have any memory exactly of how that like what he said. You know, I remember the other candidate that um, we walked out of the teaching part of it. And Doug Poe into hip hop and theology with Doug Poe, who was also there. And Doug Poe was like, what did you think of that, Ethan? And I was like, eh, I mean, honestly, it's just doesn't really seem to be like what we're looking for. She like lectured on like Hannah Arendt and who's great. Like Hannah Arendt's cool, but she's not like a theologian, mm-hmm. you know, like, like there's a place for Hannah Arendt in public theology. Don't get me wrong. But like if you were applying for a position in public theology you probably you probably wouldn't lead with a lecture on Hannah Arendt, you know? Right. That just seems weird. Like, it might be a cool extra thing to do, you know, to have in your back pocket. Also, part of my research is on Hannah Arendt and her relationship to public theology. Oh, wow, that sounds interesting. But, like, you know, you don't you do not do a lecture. You know, that's, it was just a weird thing. And I And I offered that. I was like, yeah, I mean, like, it didn't really seem to be, you know, in the wheelhouse of what we're really looking for for the position and Doug Poe was like, yeah, it's cause it wasn't it's cause what she did wasn't public theology. Whew. And I was like, who <laughs> these people are, these people are hardcore. Sandra's like <laughs> Sandra's going for the patronizing route and Doug Poe's going for the, just blunt. What you did was not the assignment route. <laughs> yeah. I man. was like, man, geez. But also like, what blows my mind about that is that like we all know how hard it is to get a job in academia right yeah. like we we have no bones about that so if you are really here for this position why are you not doing the assignment yeah <laughs> you know? no i agree why are you not fully fully if you're here for a campus interview for this position why are you not fully prepared exactly for this position. I mean, that that really hammers home what Rick said to me in the email when I was asking about my PhD project was like, like, think about whether this is going to be able to, if you want to go into teaching, think about how this is going to apply and get you a teaching job. Because like, it's this, the cross-disciplinary stuff is really hard to be, well, this is what my specialty is in because you yeah. are bringing things together and i which is just a is a challenge because i love cross-disciplinary things but it's not like somebody's going to custom make a science and religion department for me yeah no i think you're right i think you're right like it's um they i thought it was the i think it's the university of missouri is actually looking for a science and religion assistant professor that made me think of you but anyway um yeah my my understanding like of, of what the information I'm getting from UVA is similar. Like I, I think about um, uh, my one theo- my, my one theology professor, Dr. Bouchard, Larry Bouchard, Larry Bouchard, his specialty, like what he's, what he does research in is religion and literature. That's the answer. Like he, he writes books about, Greek tragedy and novels and Herman Melville and, <laughs> you know, and uh, he's got this really interesting book that I have that I haven't read yet on the construction of the human being in plays. 
Ooh, okay. Um, uh, that I'm actually really interested in. He talks about kenosis in plays, actors emptying themselves out, you know, to 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 be other people, you know, and and stuff like that. Like like I'm interested in reading that. Um, but he doesn't teach classes on that, right? You know, he teaches. He'll he'll teach class on like he might have like a a religion and literature class that'll teach like in general, but like Larry Bouchard teaches classes on Paul Tillich. And he teaches classes. He's teaching hermeneutics this coming spring that I'm going to be taking with him. So he's going to teach a class on a graduate seminar on the interpretation of religion. Like, you know, he's he's a trained he's he, he, he can do theology um, because he got a master's of theology at Chicago. He got his Ph.D. at Chicago, but it's not in straight theology. And so, like, I think about Larry Bouchard and I go, well, like, one of the reasons why he's so valuable as, like, a professor at UVA is even though his stuff is cross-disciplinary, like, he can also say, these are the things I can teach. Right. You know, like, I can teach this. I can teach this. I can teach this. And these are all valuable to a wide variety of religion uh, students. Um, oh, also, I wrote a dissertation on Herman Melville. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> like, oh, great, you know. <laughs> or or my first book was on tragedy in Greek plays and in 20th century theology. Oh, what's that all about? I have that book. It's an interesting book. And he's yeah. like, oh, what's that all about? Uh, I mean, I could probably teach a number of classes based on all of those things. Because like Tillich is in that book and Niebuhr is in that book and um, other people are in that book. But I also read a shit ton of Sophocles in that book. So like, do you want me to teach a class in undergrads on Greek, you know, religious plays? Yeah, sounds good. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. like I think about that, too. And I think that I, I that's probably a part of. On one hand, that's like something interdisciplinary work, I think, can like do because like. Dr. Bouchard's work is deeply interdisciplinary, but like within that interdisciplinary work, he's able to like pick out things that are like worthy as classes. Right. Yeah. Uh, which I think is good. Yeah. and Yeah. Yeah. And I think back to like, like my intro to worship class that I, uh, at Wesley that I was the TA for, like the the content in that class and the discussions that we got into in that class, like while I, I totally understand for certification reasons and, and all this kind of stuff, why you want somebody with a PhD to be teaching master's level people, et cetera. There, there's also like, I could design that class. I could, I mean, I wouldn't, I would not do it. I, I don't want to be like very bold and be like, give me this class. I can teach it. But like by the end of that class and with a couple, with a little bit more learning that I had done on my own and a little bit more research that I did on my own, like I understood the themes that needed to come across in it. Like I know how to lecture, like I know how to teach. And, and that's because I have an educational degree, but like mm -hmm. there's, I, a part a part of what stresses me out about academia is that like i i want to be like like just let me go i will design a great course that people will learn from and like to me the credential doesn't matter as much but i also know that like 
the credential does deeply matter, but also like what you do in PhD work does not line up at all necessarily with being a great classroom teacher. Sure. And like, it's, it just feels like there should be some sort of separation though. I also feel that like when people go off and just do plain straight research, it's not as informed by like real everyday, like it's really easily get isolated when you're off researching Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and not be reflecting you would just get new information from interacting with students I feel but what do I know anyway yeah yeah every time I come I I come across like a group of books that I think are really interesting or a topic I think is really interesting I have a little google document that I like jot it down and I like come up with like a name for the class that would use it because, Ooh. like, that's something that, like, gets my brain going and then, like, I can maybe even use in the future, right? You know, because, uh, so, and, and I, and I, I don't know what proper naming etiquette is, like, but, like, for me, you'd want to name a class in such a way that people would want to take that class. You know, you wouldn't want to name a, cl- you wouldn't want to be clear, necessarily. Like, if you're going to teach a class on, on theology, you know, in race, you want to name the class something like, you know, is, is, is God a right, a white racist, right? Like that book, right? Mm. You know, you'd want to name, you want to name the class something provocative. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm here for that. I think that sounds like, I would be like, hmm, I will take this class. That, that exactly. is what just happened in my brain. I think to like, to bring it full circle back to like our initial conversation about pastoring I, when, when I graduated from seminary, like a big part of what I wanted to do in the local church is share the knowledge that I have, right? Like I just paid a ton, well, the U.S. government paid a ton for this degree (laughs) and uh, I'm slowly slowly paying them back for it. And I don't want to keep that knowledge for myself, right? Like I think that we should just be giving knowledge away. Like Mm -hmm. the idea that all of this belongs in some sort of way to the academy and cannot be shared is ridiculous to me. And I've gotten even more like convinced that we should be giving away knowledge um, as I've been working working with like as I worked with the the group in Silva trying to get the statue removed but also just seeing like the different ways that uh, mutual aid groups are working and like the different ways that um, street medics and like people who are who are doing a lot of this stuff for free because of cost barriers to be to the, the cost barriers are so high to get it to learn from a professional with it but like giving professional level knowledge out as best as they can like I I loved being able to teach when I was a pastor and, and I love to like do teaching sermons. Like you, you talked about the lady who raised her hand and I, whenever I would try to tackle a really difficult topic, I did it more conversationally. Like I really tried not to force my viewpoint on people when we're dealing with difficult things, but allow us to explore it together, uh, which didn't, didn't always pan out the way I wanted it to, but that's fine. Um, But it strikes me that this desire to give knowledge away and this desire to teach and this desire to like give people the opportunity to learn in the ways that I have learned and to share it, like to partake in the knowledge that I have from this degree is not um, a desire that really fits being a small parish pastor. Right. Like the job is not really mostly that. 
And I know Rick said that when he was on the podcast a year ago, uh, that like the things that he liked that when he considered briefly being going into into ministry, the things that he liked about uh, ministry are things that like he really would be able to accomplish more in the academy. Um, I like it, it really makes me wonder, like I. I will talk about this in the minisode. I did uh, the funeral service for my aunt who died last week. And like, I loved being able to be a part of that service and to be a part of planning and to be able to preach a homily there and to be able to be there and comfort people and listen. Like that's my jam. I was in in, like the weird way that we've talked about on the podcast, but like, Mm -hmm. this is something that like, I am good at this and I am fulfilled by doing this. Um, but like, does that mean I need to be like a hospital chaplain? No, not really. Like I, the difficult thing about being a pastor is that we all have different gifts and we all need um, to do things that are outside of what we are gifted towards. But like, there's this kind of fundamental patience and kindness and dedication to like helping a flock along that you need to have, especially in these smaller churches. And it almost doesn't matter what other gifts you have, as long as you have that kind of core gift, everything else is kind of like dressing on the cake. And, and what I wonder is like, is it COVID that took away that, that patience that I had? Is it what's going on with the United Methodist Church that took it away? Like, was it the Trump presidency? Like, is it this bigger, like, feature of our society that made it difficult for me to stay in the parish? Or was it that I was never really built for the parish in the first place? And like, I don't know at all how to answer that question. And that's a question that like, I really need to answer before I like go back before DCOM in December. And I think that's what, that's what this whole conversation and the shift from man church was hard to this is what academia is like following this whole conversation. I, it's really striking me that like that kind of core key thing of being able to be that abiding presence for people in a, in a small setting. Like that's what you need to be a pastor in the churches that we're going to get assigned to in the United Methodist system. Mm -hmm. And goodness, I just don't know that I have that or will ever have it again. Like it will take a lot of spiritual work on my part to grow that back. And uh, I don't have the motivation to do it right now. That's kind of frightening. It, It is a little frightening, but, but it's also where you're at. And that's yeah. okay. That's okay. That's true. Uh, that was that was a good word, though. That was a good final word. Can I wrap this up? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe. We will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Showwolf, performed by Joe Showwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and remember friends, don't go on adventures with unicorns, they'll just steal your kidney.